This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. I'd like to warn you about the explicit nature of the show, but I'll just hint that you know what you're in for, making this an implicit explicit warning. It's Friday, January 22nd, 2021. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Senate will take up the articles of impeachment for trial on a timetable decided by Chuck Schumer, with some input from, one assumes, President Biden, who didn't want them to interfere with all else he has to do or undo. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell was saying, wait, 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 until February. And Schumer said, February's fine, but not too far in. February 8th, Schumer explained his thinking on the floor of the Senate today. I've been speaking to the Republican leader about the timing and duration of the trial. But make no mistake, a trial will be held in the United States Senate, and there will be a vote on whether to convict the president. The ex-president, so make one mistake, I guess. The question of whether to try the ex-president, and when, is largely argued on moral or emotional grounds, but I really think it has to be calculated on intellectual grounds. Does he deserve the trial and the possible punishment of disqualification from office? Oh yes, very much so. I'm going to say a lot more than that. But will, or maybe when will, a trial redound to the benefit of the Democrats, which I don't really care about per se, but since they're the only ones pushing a sensible agenda to combat COVID and all the other things, as Kennedy would did say, you have to think about an impeachment trial and if it could hurt the overall agenda. This entire thing is a cold calculation on trying to maximize the politics of the moment to get this vital agenda passed. So I guess I've just given the intellectual calculation, will it work, won't it work, a little bit of emotional valence, if you want to think of it this way. I sometimes think and ask myself, how much or even did the last impeachment help the Democrats? I did think it helped in one way. In fact, this way necessitated the impeachment. I'll get to that in a second. But remember, the impeachment and non-conviction, it just never came up in a debate, never came up on the trail, was never cited as evidence to possibly convince one voter who was able to be convinced, which might have been just one voter. You could argue, in fact, plausibly, that impeachment plus the not guilty verdict back in 2019 actually gave Trump the gift of citing it as an example of persecution, actually emboldened Trump to act even worse. I personally don't buy that. I mean, it's true. Trump did cite it often as an example of persecution, and he did act worse, but not because of the impeachment vote. He's an incorrigible, and incorrigibles aren't going to be dissuaded by anything than actual force or force of law. And so here's the one way that impeachment did help the Democrats. It quelled what would have been a riot among Democrats. To not have impeached would have broken the party. So Pelosi impeached, the party was placated, and everyone could go ahead and never once mention the results of it on the campaign trail. This time around, I have a matrix. I do. I actually do. I was jotting down some notes. I have on one quadrant, trial plus conviction. Then I have trial plus no conviction. Then I have no trial, which of course means no conviction, and I've X'd out that last box because there's no such thing as no trial but conviction. 
We dwell on the quadrant of trial plus conviction, which to my mind is pure upside. It would be great if Trump were banned and disqualified from holding office again. But you do have to think of the trial plus no conviction part. What are the upsides? What are the downsides? What about no trial? The Democrats just not bringing the articles. What would happen then? I tried to plot some things out. I realized that I have no firm inclination this time around. Last time I was so sure, and it was true, that there would be no conviction. I thought it wouldn't help the Democrats, but I kind of thought they had to go through with it anyway. That seems to have been what happened. This time, I'm trying to make up my mind. I do think we're going to get a trial. I'm pretty clear about that. I don't think we're going to get a conviction. And when that happens, I kind of think it won't change much about politics. But, you know, I could be wrong. Luckily, I'm not just relying on my instincts and my inclination. I am fact-finding. And that is why I've invited our guest, Joe Lockhart, on the show to talk about these things with me. After that, I will spiel, as I do, as I am wont to do on The Gist. I will spiel imagining a country that embraced masks. But first... He is a former Clinton advisor and spokesman for the White House. Joe Lockhart is here to talk about the strategy of an impeachment trial. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So here's what I've been thinking about for a while, ever since Joe Biden got inaugurated. What about impeachment? What about the trial in the Senate? how to navigate that, should that be navigated. And what I really wanted to do was talk to a very clear-eyed expert who has ideals, but also knows how politics works, and I hope can see that there is often a downside to overreach, and it's not about people not being brave enough or being milquetoast. It's about doing the right thing that helps the country and maybe the party. Joe Lockhart is such an individual, as you know, you've heard the name. He was the press secretary for Bill Clinton from 98 to 2000. He's since been very active in Democratic circles, advising all sorts of politicians on communication and strategy. He knows the lay of the land. Joe, welcome to The Gist. Glad to be here. I'll start with the big, easy question. How hard should Democrats push for a trial in the Senate? Yeah, well, it's the big question and a very hard question. The priority for Joe Biden is to get COVID under control, get the economy going. And a trial makes that harder. But at the end of the day, inaction here, I think, is not an option. Um, You know, what the president did was so egregious, what members of Congress did were so egregious that they have to put some time aside to deal with it. They They should only spend days on it. Uh, Mm -hmm. But they do have to deal with it. Okay, let's be practical because I know the answer to the concern, oh, how do you have a trial, but also get this 
vital agenda passed, the answer is something like, I think we could walk and chew gum at the same time. But as you know, it's hard. It's walking and chewing gum is easy. What we're talking about, both of these things, a Senate trial and a huge package of relief, both of those are hard. So can you just talk a little bit about what the actual complications might be if there is a trial? It's about grabbing the public's attention. If the public's attention is on COVID and COVID relief, that puts an enormous amount of pressure on the Republicans uh, to go along with President Biden's proposal and to do as, you know, uh, Jen Psaki, the press secretary, did in her first briefing, explain to the public what part of that package we don't need. The trial grabs attention away from that and, and moves it, you know, into the rearview mirror. And I think in some ways, I think some of the Republicans want that to happen because it it takes away from the momentum that uh, the Biden-Harris administration has. So that's why I think it's going to take a while. My, my guess is all of this COVID relief and economic relief is going to have to be done under budget reconciliation. So that's going to take some time. So the time in between should be used for, and it could be done in just a matter of days, running the trial, taking a vote and moving on. The fact of the matter is the only reason to hold this trial is to put everybody on record. There's 100 senators who have a nice job in Washington, and they don't get to avoid making a decision on this. There are practicalities about whether they'll impose not being able to run for office again. But primarily, it's to demonstrate to the American public how wrong you know the last three months have been. And secondly, making our representatives go on record as saying, is this okay or is this not okay? Mm-hmm. So it's not really about a consequence for Trump. Yeah, I mean, he may think he wants to run again and they may impose a ban on him. So, it, you know, it, it, there, there is a practical co- uh, consequence, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, there is a reputational consequence, being the only president in history to be convicted uh, after impeachment. But with Trump, I, I, you know, I think he just lives in his own reality. And I, I'm not so sure that that matters to him. I'll tell you this. It should not matter to anyone else. It should not matter to senators. It should not matter to the White House. It should not matter to you and me how Trump feels about this. What if the trial results in not a conviction and an exoneration? A, how's that a consequence? And B, doesn't that put Trump or the people who want to argue for him in a little better position than if they never had the trial at all. If they just said it's impractical and we can't do it, but we know, we know that you should face a consequence. What I'm saying is here's the scenario. He gets off. Doesn't that put a little wind in his sails? Perhaps. But and this is where I'll be more partisan than analytical. That's not a bad thing for Democrats. There really isn't a lose here for Democrats. But having Trump continue to divide the party is a stone cold loser for the Republicans. And it is it is a, a winner for Democrats. So even if, you know, he's he's exonerated and he can say uh, he was acquitted, that divide within the Republican Party will only harden because you will get Republican senators this time voting to convict. There are forces within the Republican Party that uh, have found a little bit of courage uh, in, the, in the last month or two that want to take their party back. And look at Mitch McConnell. He's I mean, he's if you want to look at one senator as representative of the Republican Party, it's it's McConnell because that's all he cares about is party politics. 
you know, he's now sending a signal that he might be willing to jettison Trump for the good of the party moving forward. I do yeah. think in the long term, Trump's influence fundamentally divides the Republican Party. His power over the members diminishes every day. His power over the, the voters is, has already diminished a bit. But it's good for Democrats, I think, and good for the country if Republicans spend the next decade figuring out what kind of party they are. Why won't a quick two-day trial actually be an out or a rallying cry for Republicans? Well, I mean, it could be. For Democrats, McConnell convincing his caucus to come down hard on Trump and to basically lay down a marker that we're not the Trump party anymore and we're, we're going to go back to a more traditional place um, is, is good for Republicans. And in the end, it actually is probably good for the country. Um, but in terms of near-term politics for the Democrats, Republicans in disarray allows the Democrats a lot more maneuvering room uh, as far as getting things done, as far as picking off Republicans you know, to support different parts of the president's agenda. If the Republican Party is as in a bad shape as you say, and it's a compelling argument, I know exactly what you're talking about in the divisions, but why didn't it show up on election day? Why do why did so many voters vote for Republicans in greater numbers than they were expected to? Well, because Trump was on the ballot and the Republican Party as Trump's party pulled in a a swath of uh, voters that just don't exist for traditional Republicans. I think you look at the difference between Election Day in November and the special election, and, and you, you, that's where you find the delta, which is Trump's name is not on the ballot. People, they, they don't care. Trump's name on the ballot, a lot of people come out that wouldn't normally come out, and they vote down the ticket because Trump's endorsed um, Joni Ernst in Iowa, or Trump's endorsed Lindsey Graham in, in South Carolina, and they're Trump's people. When Trump really wasn't involved, his name wasn't on the ballot, he really, he didn't play a constructive role in Georgia, they lost. You know, you can argue that, boy, it was close, but I'd, my answer to that is, it was Georgia. We're, we're right. not supposed to, we've never won a special election in Georgia. It uh, has a lot to do with the identity of what a Republican is now. There are a growing number of senators saying, if I'm a Trump Republican, the Republican Party is going to eventually die. So I'm, I'm not going to stay there. And again, I come back to McConnell. McConnell never says anything without thinking it through. And his comments in the aftermath of the impeachment vote were very clear, which was, I'm okay with this going ahead. <laughs> I think if I'm hearing you right, where you have your uncertainty, where there is a tension in terms of the strategy and tactics, it's somewhere around, the fulcrum of that tension is, do we let the Republicans destroy themselves in due time, or do we intercede, we, meaning the Democrats, do we intercede in a way that will speed up their destruction? Is that about right? Is that fair? Is that, the, is that what you ponder over? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think, I believe you know, what President Biden will dictate is the latter approach. Like, let's drive a wedge in the Republican Party to get enough votes to get all of this stuff done and then let the politics play out. Uh, you, right. know, you know, let the chips fall as they may. So I think that's what will happen. I, I That's what will happen as far as his approach. What I don't know is what the Republicans approach will be. I think they're trying to figure that out. You know, they've got these sort of lame talking points out there now that say, 
you know, if the Democratic Party wants unity, they need And what they're really saying is after the Democrats won the election, if they want unity, they have to give in to all our demands. Right. Unity means, means agreement. Terrorists yeah. win, you know. <laughs> right. And yeah, that's always, that's always a pathway to unity. Just drop yeah, exactly. all your objections. Like, as long as you do whatever we want, even Republican. though we lost, we're cool. Okay, so let's talk about the wedge and Democrats helping the Republicans along with their crack up a, a an impeachment trial, maybe done over a couple days, that does not result in conviction. You think that will still effectively drive a wedge because it will get Republican senators on record. Yeah, and I think there will be Republicans will be forced to self-identify as a Trump Republican or as a traditional Republican. And I think there'll be way more than one vote uh, against um, Trump this time. Mm -hmm. I don't know there'll be 17, uh, but it's going to be somewhere in between. It's not going to just be a handful. There, There are senators, you know, take Susan Collins. She's got six years before she has to face the voters again. And who knows if she's going to run again? Um, right. I know deep down that she, she thinks Trump is a corrupt buffoon. Uh, what's the downside for her if she doesn't have to face the voters again for six years of defying Trump? I understood what the downside for her was last year. It seems like a, a decade ago it happened, but it was just last year. Uh, the, the dynamic for many of take Lisa Murkowski. She's got to run again, but the Alaska electorate is not necessarily you know, made up of purely Trump voters. It might, you know, she ran as a write-in independent the first time. Everybody will be making their own calculations that will be different than, you know, everybody in cycle has to figure out, does Trump help me or does Trump hurt me? And the, you know, politicians are pretty predictable. They always look at the last election and draw every conclusion you could possibly draw. And they're all looking at Georgia and they're all thinking, can that happen to me? It's a jump ball for how it will result, you know, in the short term, I think Democrats win by doing this, by forcing them on the record. In, you know, the medium term, Republicans getting with Biden on the agenda is a recipe for getting well and starting to rehabilitate the party. And if you're a hardcore partisan Democrat, maybe you don't want to give them that. I'm not there. The only thing I'd say about the long term is never underestimate the Democrats' ability to screw it up for themselves. You say that politicians look at the last election and perhaps overinterpret the results. My last question is actually about the next election. Joe, you come back on the show in a year and 10 months. We've just had midterms. History says the president's party usually loses seats. If you're right that this was the right strategy, the Democrats force the vote in the Senate, but Trump is not convicted. What should the midterms look like to reflect the fact that that was the right strategy to take? I, I think the midterms are not going to be about Trump. I think the midterms are going to be, and this this is it's, this is sort of convoluted in its thinking, but you know, if Biden does an exceptional job in getting the coronavirus under control within the first year, mm. you know, the midterms will be about something else. If he's in the middle of trying to revive the economy, but things are beginning to turn around in 2022, you know, that helps uh, him and helps Democrats. I think Trump will want to play a role in all this. But I at the end of the day, you know, just like in impeachment in 2020 in a lot of races didn't matter. I'm not sure it's going to be determinative in, in a lot of races 
in, in 2022 because you know Trump is naturally going to fade. So again, I the 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 lens in which I look at this is not necessarily the midterms. It's a little bit wider, which is what is the Republican Party? What does it stand for? Is it going to be a minority party of you know white white grievance, or are they going to figure out a way to put the old coalition of you know middle to upper class people, you know some working class whites, you know they never win the popular vote nationally, but the electoral college saves them time after time. That is, you know, to me, the much more interesting question. I guess that Trump himself, you know, won't directly influence it. But the people who, you know, you take the the Senate races mm-hmm. and you take the Senate. And, you know, the whole reason we had this vote and insurrection, you know, whether it was planned or not, was you had two presidential candidates trying to get to the right of a bunch of other senators, you know, Hawley yeah. and Cruz. So he will be there. He will have an influence. Uh, his name will not be on the ballot. And, you know, I, one of the things we did learn in Georgia is, is when his name is on the ballot, a lot of his voters stay home and listen to Rush and watch Fox, but don't go to the polls. Joe Lockhart is a spokesman and communications consultant. You see him on CNN. He was the 19th White House press secretary under Bill Clinton. What number are they on now? Do you know? Oh, man, they're in the 30s. And, th- and does that even include the one who didn't speak? She gets counted. Well, I, they're in the they're in the thirties, but you know you know how they take these coaches and they have to forfeit games because they cheated. <laughs> I'm going right. to start a movement that that the, the four under uh, Trump didn't count. Uh huh. Taking the names from the, taking the banners from the rafters, huh? Exactly. Exactly. Joe Lockhart, thanks so much. Oh sure, thank you. And now the spiel. Joe Biden began his time as president addressing the most pressing issue facing Americans, which is, of course, the coronavirus. U.S. preparation is worse than we knew. There is no real plan to supplement the initial shipment of 100 million doses. But I also have to say it is not as bad as is being portrayed. Yes, the rollout has not gone well. In fact, it has not gone adequately. I'm not arguing that. But I just wonder, what did we expect Why would we think that a sprawling, far-flung, but also siloed, in terms of media, siloed society would be able to easily coordinate a logistically extremely demanding task? I often hear someone on the news saying, how hard could it be? How hard is it really to fill in the blank, give someone a shot, put vaccines in people's arms, or some other description of the task at hand that minimizes the actual challenges? The answer is, It's very hard. Why wouldn't it be hard? It's not like we have a system set up that already does this. Think of the only other mass action that takes overall total societal mobilization. Happens every couple years, voting. Unlike getting a vaccine, everyone knows when election day is. There are no limits to supply. You might have to wait online, but there's always going to be a supply to meet the demand among adult citizens. There's no prioritization over who gets to vote and who doesn't. So there's no confusion concerning that. And no one is afraid that election day might cause an allergic reaction. Let us not engage in the Ted Cruz versus Better O'Rourke election humor right now. But what I'm saying is that with all this in place, Still, half the people who can vote don't vote, and a lot of them say, yeah, I'd like to vote, but for some other ideas. 
Now, look, that's more of a supply side problem than a demand problem. People don't demand that they vote. But I'm just pointing to a huge societal mobilization where things don't go well because these things are hard. I was also thinking about Thanksgiving. Everyone buys a turkey, right? They don't, but let's pretend they do. But Thanksgiving turkey delivery, there's a whole huge supply chain apparatus already built in. And there are distinctive sites called stores that everyone knows about where you could get your turkey. And there's millions of dollars in advertising involved. And there's hundreds of years of tradition. There's no equivalent with a vaccine. Why wouldn't a vaccine vaccinating almost every American, why wouldn't that be hard? It's daunting. Now, compared with other countries, we should note that America is doing pretty well. Israel is kicking ass, Mossad and Tel, I guess, and the UAE and Bahrain, small other Middle Eastern countries also doing pretty well. But if you look at a per 100,000 person basis, the U.S. has a higher rate of vaccination than anywhere in the world but the U.K. The U.K. uh, has surpassed the United States. But the U.S. is doing better at inoculating Americans than France is doing at inoculating the French or Spain and the Spanish or German Germany, the Germans aren't getting inoculated as, as quickly, neither are the Canadians. Even still, you don't need me from my remove to tell you, oh, no, no, things are going well. I'm not saying things are going well. You probably have personal stories or stories of relatives for whom things aren't going well. They're not getting the shot. They don't know when they're going to get the shot or it hasn't gone. You can't even say it has gone well. It hasn't gone at all. So Joe Biden is correct, and he's emphasizing the right things when he says this. And while the vaccine provides so much hope, the rollout has been a dismal failure thus far. So I understand the despair and frustration of so many Americans and how they're feeling. I understand why many governors, mayors, county officials, tribal leaders feel like they're left on their own without a clear national plan to get them through the crisis. Let me be very clear. Things are going to continue to get worse before they get better. The memorial we, uh, we held uh, two nights ago will not be our last one, unfortunately. The death toll will likely top 500,000 next month. The cases will continue to mount. We didn't get into this mess overnight. And it's going to take months for us to turn things around. But what I sometimes wonder is what if there was such a competent-seeming message from the start. I'm not saying let us wish into existence a hyper-competent, hyper-aware, far-seeing, perfect administration. I'm not even saying let's hope for a, you know, somewhat competent administration. I'm just saying take the dumbest thing the last administration did and take it off the table. And what if there was just a decent a relatively decent message on masks and message on spacing. I've been watching the Biden administration during the inauguration, during the celebrations around it, and I've seen more masking in two days than I saw in the last 10 months from the Trump administration. The Biden people stand apart. They stand apart from each other, but they don't stand apart from Americans because Americans by and large are following protocols. The majority mask. But it's not the vast majority, and that has killed thousands of people. Now, you may be thinking, "Eh, there's nothing to be done with these anti-maskers. They're Trump loyalists or QAnoners or the live free or die crowd. 
Yes, they are, but that's a small part of them. Anti-masking has become just part and parcel of the Republican mindset, and it wasn't always necessarily so. It didn't have to be this way. If we ran this experiment from the start, I wonder if the anti-mask side would be necessarily Republican and would be as vocally Republican, in fact, as much a sign of Republicanness as it has become. Now, you might go and say, okay, okay, but think about the people we're talking about, the get-off-my-land, liberty-loving, freedom-filating crowd. Don't tread on me. That sentiment, that's pure Republican. Yes, but you know what else is? Fear of contagion. Lots of studies show that Republicans, or the conservative mindset, more freaked out about diseases, more freaked out by unseen pathogens. Plus the anti-vax crowd, that has plenty of liberals in it. So maybe they'd be against masking more so than Republicans did in our thought experiment where we replayed things again without that very influential person at the top mm -hmm, influencing our mask choices. Conservatives also, they're the party, the self-style party of life. And isn't it a pro-life stance or pro-life choice to wear a mask? Just fundamentally, caution, fear of the unknown, it's an inherently conservative disposition. So anti-mask, while it has become synonymous with the right or the far right, there are reasons to doubt that this was inevitable. And the reason it wasn't, we all know this, is mainly because of Trump, mainly because of Trump's embrace of anti-masking, his reluctance to use a mask, and his hugging, toe-touching, however you want to describe it, with the looniest fringes of the far right. If you look at other countries, there's not this stark right-left divide. Now, there are some countries that have the strongman leaders, which Trump is or thinks he was, and strongman leaders are terrible at coronavirus battling and terrible at masking, like Bolsonaro of Brazil. But there are other very repressive societies, right? Not free societies. Take Saudi Arabia, where everyone masks. They have experience with MERS, so the kingdom decrees it. The people dare not object, but I really think that even if they could, they wouldn't object. You know, in Canada, there is some anti-mask sentiment, but not much as ours. And it is true that Canada is more liberal than the United States, but the anti-mask sentiment is more suppressed than even the natural right-left divide in Canada would lead you to think. In fact, in the beginning, there was like no anti-masking sentiment except among the Bloc Québécois supporters. And they don't map perfectly onto the left-right continuum, but they do have a lot of elements of labor. They do have a lot of uh, social Democrat to them. The point is they're definitely not the most conservative forces in Canada. And they were the only ones anti-masking at first. Then anti-masking got a little more popular in Canada. Clifton Vander Linden, who's a professor of political science at McMaster, has studied this. And he says the reason that there is some anti-masking in Canada is it essentially bubbled up from down south. Yeah, the United States talk about contagion. It infected their thinking on masks. Still in Canada, they mask a lot more than the United States. I do think of all of Donald Trump's decisions, the most consequential might be one he didn't make for personal gain or political gain, or just to be a jerk. He made a lot of decisions to do that. He thought masks were just unmanly. Plus, wearing them was an admission of a reality that he sought to deny. So, no masks. And that gave the signal to his supporters that this issue would be politicized and how it would be politicized. This alone has cost us thousands of lives. Maybe even, if you go by some estimates, maybe even 100,000 lives. 
Yesterday, Joe Biden talked about his administration's plans to mobilize, to spend billions, to work diligently on the most pressing problem in America. And he also gave this grim prediction. Let me be very clear. Things are going to continue to get worse before they get better. The memorial we, uh, we held uh, two nights ago will not be our last one, unfortunately. The death toll will likely top 500,000 next month. The cases will continue to mount. We didn't get into this mess overnight. It's going to take months for us to turn things around. That number is horrible, but it could have been the still horrible 400,000 or even less had a piece of fabric not been politicized, a decision that was as much a non-decision, an instinct, a pathetic intransigence that will probably fairly be remembered as one of the deadliest and dumbest things our society has ever done. And that's it for today's show. Make no mistake, Shana Roth produces the gist, which means she cleans up the audio where I make one mistake, or two or three. Let me be clear, Margaret Kelly produces the gist, which is to say she tweaks the audio and cuts out the confusing parts, which are the techniques that literally let me be clear. Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast, she liked the Joe Lockhart interview. She liked Joe Lockhart as press secretary, thinks Jen Psaki doing a fine job as press secretary, but she generally prefers her press secretaries, Short and Tubby. Joseph Short and Roger Tubby last two press secretaries of the Truman administration. The gist, I too like a press secretary in the short and tubby mold. In an unrelated story, Sean Spicer, now with the Newsmax Network, has applied to join the White House press corps. Unrelated. I said it was unrelated. Oompuru depuru dupuru, and thanks for listening.